Indigenous patients come in at the same baseline disease activity or maybe even slightly less swollen joints. But over the course of that first three years, they're 60% less likely to obtain remission. That's Dr. Cheryl Barnaby from the University of Calgary. She's our guest on this episode of Around the Room, the Canadian Rheumatology Association podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Daniel Ennis. Today, we're doing the first of a series of interviews on an important topic, Indigenous health in Canada. And we're shaking things up a little bit on this episode. I'm handing over the microphones to my colleague, Dr. Brent O'Hatter from UBC, and Dr. Cheryl Barnaby, who is Métis and a rheumatologist at the University of Calgary. So hello and welcome to today's CRA Around the Room podcast. This is Brent Ohata from UBC and I'm uh, delighted to be hosting today's podcast. I'm joined today with Cheryl Barnaby from the University of Calgary. Uh, Cheryl, I've known you for many years and I know all of the wonderful things that you've done, uh, but there are perhaps some people on the podcast who don't know you. Maybe you could give uh, a few sentences introduction of yourself. Sure. Hi, Brent. Great to have a good chat. Uh, So, yeah, I'm an adult rheumatologist at the University of Calgary. I did my medical school and internal medicine training at the University of Manitoba and then came to Calgary to do rheumatology and then stayed and did a graduate degree and and, uh, joined academia. So that's a bit about me. Uh, My... Background is uh, Métis from southeastern Manitoba, but now uh, living in Alberta, I actually uh, have to identify as a member of the Métis Nation of Alberta, Region 3. So fun fact about Indigenous health is that band membership, you stay with your band until you marry out of it, and Métis Nation, you become a member in whatever province you're living in. So that's the state. (laughs) That's wonderful. And Cheryl, we're here today actually to talk about Indigenous health, and I'm excited that this is going to be the first of several podcasts on this topic. Uh, Why don't you begin by telling me how you became interested in Indigenous health? So during that training at the University of Manitoba, I had the opportunity to work with um, all the amazing mentors there, including David Robinson and Christine Peshkin and Carol Hitchin and Hani Al-Gablawi and a big list of great people. And of course, their practice being in Winnipeg was very much centered around Indigenous health uh, and Indigenous patients, both in the city, which is what I primarily experienced, um, and then also with some of them doing fly up um, to the north. And a lot of their research activities were also tied to that. And so that was my initial work was actually helping with some of their research projects at the university. When I moved to Calgary, I was just getting to know the group. You know, it wasn't something that I immediately gravitated towards. But during my training here, I was particularly struck by uh, a, a person that I saw who was from one of the nearby reserves. And what struck me about this interaction, what stuck with me all throughout these years is, you know, this was mid 2000s. And we had access to some of the biologics and treat to target was starting to be thought about. And a lot of the people I was seeing in rheumatology clinic in Calgary, I couldn't even tell they had rheumatoid arthritis. There was no inflammation. There was no damage. They were well controlled. Um, But this one woman who'd come in from one of the communities um, came in with very destructive disease. And so where I was, you know, suggesting what we do for everybody, 
um, she kind of laughed and she said, well, there's no way that I can get transportation to bring me in for, you know, biologic infusion uh, or to have a nurse inject that. There's no way that's going to happen. And I started to ask why and try to figure it out and realized all the limitations that existed with NIHB um, and then just some of these structural issues around accessing care. And so uh, that really just made me realize, you know, that for this lady, it was actually easier to go and get gold therapy at her doctor's office than to get access to a biologic. And that just seemed absolutely ludicrous in the, the time and age. And so I think that's where my uh, interest started. It was really um, put forward, though, um, in about 2010 or 2009, somewhere in there, uh, where our Department of Medicine head at the time approached our division and said, you guys need to start doing some outreach um, because there were well-established clinical outreach programs for some of the other medicine subspecialties in southern Alberta. And um, Diane Mosier was our division chief, um, new to Calgary at the time and knew of my work in Winnipeg uh, with the group there and so suggested that I be the one that sets up this uh, relationship. And that's where it all started. I started working in one community. The family docs who worked in that community also worked in other clinics and said, hey, can you come and do this here too? And we'd love to have you in this community. And it really grew to be the sole focus of my practice now at this point and um, has been a tremendous career um, opportunity to, to work with people and uh, the family physicians that serve them as well. I think that's an amazing story, Cheryl. And what I hear is that you saw one thing when you were working in the hospitals in Calgary, and you probably see very different things working on reserve. Now, a lot of us work in hospital and don't have a lot of exposure. In fact, a lot of people I talk to say, you know, Indigenous health isn't really relevant to me. There aren't very many Indigenous people in my community or practice. Are, are we just missing them? Should we be doing more outreach? So I, I suspect that a lot of people are seeing Indigenous patients and just don't realize it uh, because people may be not looking like what we all have as a stereotype of what an Indigenous person looks like. Or it might be not realizing that, in fact, about 40, 50, 60 percent of Indigenous people live in cities. So they are definitely um, around and they are certainly overrepresented uh, in regards to the onset and severity of rheumatic disease. And so I think people are seeing them. They just don't realize they are. <laughs> and uh, Certainly, once you start uh, building relationships with communities and going out to some of these communities or working in an urban Indigenous clinic um, or even being nearby to a, a location where, you know, a reserve or a settlement, for example, you will see many, many patients because arthritis is uh, affecting so many people in community. Well, previously, you mentioned in your anecdote how you saw patients in urban Calgary who had rheumatoid arthritis and had pristine joints uh, and saw this other Indigenous patient who was having quite severe disease activity. What do you think underlies this and, and, and why do you think it's important that we focus on Indigenous health? So um, I get asked that uh, very frequently. Why is arthritis more common? Why are the outcomes more severe? And I think the natural thing that people gravitate towards is around access to health services. And that is a, certainly a huge 
part of, of this story. Um, we all know that we don't know exactly what causes rheumatoid arthritis or what causes lupus, but um, certainly there are elements in people's environments that can trigger these conditions and those environmental factors are heightened um, occurrence in the community. It's hard to encounter a system where you've been mistreated or where your family members have been mistreated. So it is easier to avoid presenting for care, or it might be that there's other health conditions that are taking precedence or family and social concerns that are taking precedence. And, and people are very obligated to fulfill their roles in their community. And so that might be more important on that day for that person to attend to rather than coming in and seeking care. Um, I think over time too, uh, we're starting to learn more and more about the role of trauma and stress and mental health concerns and their impact on rheumatic disease management uh, and even risk for disease in some of the association studies out of the US. Um, not that they're Indigenous specific studies, but I think most of us could realize that there are elevated occurrences of trauma in communities as well and in individuals that um, might be predisposing them to some of these uh, outcomes as well, or even just getting disease in the first place. And uh, I think as well, Brent, one of the other things that we know impacts outcomes is access to medications. And so we worked in originally in Henry Averns with the CRA did a ton of work to advocate for access for NHB covered patients to increase formulary options and make it simpler for people to access these medications. And one of the things that maybe people don't realize is that if you are First Nations, but you don't have treaty status, or you're Métis, you actually don't have access to that formulary. So your coverage would be what is available through your province. Um, but a lot of people, because of poverty, um, don't have access to being able to cover some of the premiums, or they may not be employed and have a plan through work. And so they actually have very limited ability to access medications. That is something that we still haven't fixed um, in this country is around resolving some of that. And then one of the final pieces is um, we had the fortune of looking at data from CATCH, which is our early inflammatory arthritis cohort in Canada run by Vivian Bykirk and many other very talented rheumatologists. And they had collected information for a decade that we were able to look at to look at Indigenous people's outcomes in that database. And this is really the best case scenario. You've got high volume early inflammatory arthritis clinic centers, and you've got people who are accessing care within that first year. And you do have access to treat to target and all of the, you know, multidisciplinary teams that make a difference in EIA care. And Indigenous patients come in at the same baseline disease activity, or maybe even slightly a few less swollen joints. Um, but over the course of that first three years, they're 60% less likely to uh, obtain remission. And a lot of that can be explained by inequities in people's determinants of health or some of those disease prognostic factors that we know make a big difference. Um, and that is already catching up with people even just three years into their disease. So when we extrapolate to decades out, um, people are going to have more severe outcomes. And we have to think about ways that we can work better at um, finding the right solutions for their arthritis. 
You mentioned a ton of things, Cheryl, from socioeconomic factors to trauma to access to medications, all resulting in worse outcomes. Perhaps you could even just share an anecdote of, of a patient journey that, uh, that comes to mind, uh, when they've been navigating, navigating the healthcare system and, and the challenges they faced. Um, so many people in my practice for sure. I'm, you know, I can think of, uh, I used to work in Southern Alberta where there were no rheumatologists for many, many years. And uh, lots of mistrust of the family care providers in that area. And unfortunately, also many episodes of racism that have been documented in the, the health system down there. And people would come in with joint pain and they were assumed to be seeking pain medications and narcotics. And so they would receive those or they would receive some sort of horrible interaction with their healthcare provider down there. And so then they would go to the emergency department and the emergency department would make the same assumptions um, that they were just there seeking narcotics. And so they would get some narcotics and then they would go to the next provider. And so some of the people I would see in that practice were actually probably four or five years into their disease and nobody had ever examined their joints because of the biases and the assumptions and stereotypes that people held about them. Then they would be referred in and uh, I'd see them and it was clear they had inflammatory disease, but some of the other things would um, come into play. So at this point, addictions are well established because that's how they've been taught to manage pain is to receive a prescription for more Tylenol threes or more morphine or whatever it might be. And so um, there'd be times where they were in rehab and couldn't come to those appointments for rheumatology. And, and you know, uh, we weren't, this was all pre-COVID, so we weren't really used to picking up the phone <laughs> to try to find people or they weren't in a state where they could do that. Um, then we'd run into issues with medication coverage because perhaps they weren't a band member. And so they couldn't afford even sulfasalazine or methotrexate. Um, some of those things that we take for granted should be very you know, cheap to access, but some people have to make a choice between food that week um, or some safe place to stay or their DMARTs. And so, you know, hierarchy of needs, you have to make sure that you're able to live before you can really entertain those other uh, levels of care. And uh, those are just some of the things, transportation to clinic, also very difficult, um, you know, trying to advocate for people to be brought by ambulance to hospital because they've got something so severe going on um, was a daily occurrence uh, because things had been neglected um, and they just didn't feel, you know, that they were receiving the care that they needed. So they wouldn't go until things had progressed um, quite far. So um, many factors impair that um, ability to do what we think should be done. We'll be right back to Around the Room after this brief message from the CRA. Did you know that membership with the Canadian Rheumatology Association offers outstanding value through knowledge sharing, accredited educational offerings, advocacy, and research support? Members receive access to free webinars, programs, and discounts to events such as the CRA Review Course and Annual Scientific Meeting. Members also receive complimentary subscriptions to the Journal of Rheumatology and the Journal of the Canadian Rheumatology Association. 
Trainees can join for free and are eligible for educational and training opportunities, travel bursaries, and much more. These are just some of the many benefits of joining the Canadian Rheumatology Association. And if you're an existing member, spread the word to rheumatology colleagues who haven't joined yet. They'll thank you for it. For more information, please visit our website at www.room.ca. And now, back to Around the Room. Cheryl, I, I think many of us are actually not very good about asking about many of these things that, that you mentioned. You know, we don't often ask about patient transport. We don't often ask or feel comfortable asking about addiction or many of these other social determinants of health. How, how do you ask about this? Because I think many of us uh, simply simply see patients um, uh, who don't show up to our appointments, and we get frustrated. And, and this this probably compounds a lot of the mutual distrust that 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 many of us face. So I know that no shows are a big tension, especially for fee for service um, physicians, and uh, I think one of the lessons I learned early on was that you always take them when they come. <laughs> so uh, sometimes my clinic list is over 100% booked because people bring in their family members and say, look, it's more important that you see them today than to see me, please see them. And so having a lot of flexibility um, in the schedule uh, and trying to adapt and work, you know, because a lot of times they'll also come in to see primary care because they can't get in on the day that I'm there. And so um, I did some work with the family physicians. And so we've built that relationship. And so they will let me know when things are going wrong with somebody as well, when, when their life is occupied by other concerns. I do hear about it from the family physicians um, in, in that shared care model that we have for the patient. Um, but when they are in clinic, I do focus on that relationship building first. So I'm not there to just jump into business and let's let's talk about the arthritis and what the symptoms are you are having. I do find it's really important to ask them how they're doing since um, I last saw them or to have them tell me a bit about themselves. And in reciprocal um, action, I tell them a bit about myself and my background. And um, in some of these smaller communities, again, this context might be completely different to seeing a few people in an urban practice, but in the context of community, um, because everyone's related, they do talk about who am I, how was I that day, what's happening in my life. Um, and, uh, and that's just part of it is that people have to feel very comfortable that you're there. You're not, you know, coming in to do uh, you know, a year or two of, of service, and then you're taking off right away, there's a longitudinal commitment. Um, I honor some of those requests to attend community events, or help out in the community. Um, like, for example, with COVID, they need help with immunization clinic, I'll come and do your immunization clinic. And so I think that's something that you build that bond over time with the community, but then as the individuals, just getting to know them a bit personally, um, spending more time you know, a lot of people have a lot of grief in their lives and they need to have a place to share what's happened in their history or what's happening with their family members right now. And I know it's not rheumatology, but I can't talk about rheumatology if I don't know what's going on first with that person. 
Um, so we get to the rheumatology part of it after some of these rich um, discussions that give me a lot of insight into how people are trying to survive at that day. And then that way we can really focus on the right um, the right needs for the arthritis at that time, even if it's not necessarily what we consider to be like, you know, at this moment, we've got triple therapy rolling right now, <laughs> right? We have to do that a bit more progressively um, to get there. I think that's fantastic, Cheryl. You know, what I hear is taking the time to listen and, and find out, you know, the, the greater story behind patients is is essential. And, and you've given a great tip about, um, you know, about, uh, about seeing people when they show up and, um, you know, uh, what I always say is, is rewarding presenteeism as opposed to punishing absenteeism, which I think is fantastic. What are some other pearls that you might have, uh, for all of the listeners for how, how they can improve their relationships and build greater trust with their Indigenous patients? Some of it is um, just the the nature of the interaction. Um, so I really um, make sure that I'm setting my chair down below the, the height of the patient so that I'm not seen as a, th- and I never wear my white coat. I mean, I haven't had that around for <laughs> a long, long time. Not, um, not coming in with that authoritative air because the authority part is um, very, very much recalling residential school or other previous interactions with authority that um, people have had bad interactions with. So you don't want to recreate that sense. So I really do try to be very, um, very relaxed in my, in my approach in the clinic. Uh, again, spending the first part of the visit, actually just checking in on people, how they're doing, checking in on something they've told me in the past, you know, if, if it was about a relationship um, issue and, you know, how, how has that progressed and, and resolved? And, I know some people might feel like maybe that's nosy or maybe they're they're not comfortable asking those questions and it's not meant to be nosy. It's not going super in depth. I'm not a counselor either, but it's around just understanding where things are at so that what we're doing um, moving forward is, is actually beneficial. Um, some of the other things would be to be very careful about language um, that I'm using. And so not approaching it from how come you didn't take this or how come you didn't follow up on that more so asking you know what was it that you thought would be possible for you why what was the decision you made help me and understand what that decision was and why so more of a curiosity approach as opposed to a you know why aren't you meeting my checklist (laughs) type of approach and um, giving people the chance to explain it and listening to story because you get a lot of information from listening to story. I would um, also say that following up on promises is really important and making sure that if I say I'm going to look into something, I do get back to them about that and not passing it off to someone else. Really just taking care of it uh, myself uh, is a, an important factor that builds that that interaction with the patient and um, what else, what else can I tell you? (laughs) I guess just trying to be um, friendly and, uh, and making sure that the examination is safe as well. I think that is um, something that, uh, you know, I remember in my training, if I didn't have the person in a gown um, so that I could examine every joint completely um, with appropriate draping, but completely exposed, it was a, a big fault 
And a lot of people are very uncomfortable with that. So I know in pediatric rheumatology, they're always great at reminding people to wear shorts and tank tops to their appointment, or they provide something that's, a, a, you know, decent for a kid to be comfortable in. Um, why don't we do that with adults, right? It's, it's such a simple thing. Or if they're really not comfortable, um, just trying to work around, you know, what they do have um, for clothing that doesn't require them to be completely undressed, because that is a very vulnerable state. Um, and asking permission and explaining why I'm asking um, certain questions that might be more sensitive or exploring, you know, a skin exam that seems like a lot um, and maybe not related to arthritis, for example, immediately just explaining why these things are important to do um, in the context of understanding their disease phenotype um, or why I'm asking an invasive question. And just being very cautious about touch and making sure that they, they're they understanding the progression of the exam and not um, rushing ahead and, and being really rough, um, because that is very offsetting to people as well. Cheryl, as a final question, uh, you told us about the outreach clinics that you've done through the University of Calgary, which I think are very innovative. And frankly, many of us tend to be hospital-based or clinic-based. Can you tell me a little bit more about uh, about the outreach clinics and the difference between seeing people on reserve uh, in their own communities as opposed to uh, in a tertiary care hospital? Yeah, I think that's the the best part of my job is actually going out to community, and it's because I I'm um, I'm their visitor actually, so I think that also sets the. The tone. I, I'm there um, as a guest, and so you're always a, on good behavior <laughs> in someone else's home. And uh, you know, it's it's a, a privilege to work out there, honestly, because the healthcare providers in the community are all there um, as community members for the most part, um, but also because they work in a different way than our institutions want us to work. Um, so there's a different pace, there's a different process, um, there's a relaxed atmosphere to it, and that translates across to that whole patient experience. So um, some of these clinics are set up like homes, actually. They have couches. They Pre-COVID times, they had kitchens where people could you know, get tea or coffee while they wait for the physician to be ready for them. And you would hear people conversing in their language in the clinic um, waiting room, which um, is lovely to hear. And we weren't the, the super sterile, like blank walls with pamphlets. <laughs> we had, you know, cultural um, art on display or images of people in their community celebrating their traditions. Like it's a, it's a really different um, atmosphere. Um, the, the staff smudge at the beginning of the day so that everyone's starting that day in a good way. It's, it's just a, you know, the elders are working there in the clinics as well with people. And it really sets a totally different tone um, to the healthcare environment so that people are very relaxed. Yeah, and I think people are just more helpful as well. So if somebody hasn't arrived to an appointment and I go say, hey, have you heard from this person? They're like, you know what, let me let me message them. <laughs> and so some of these things go against, again, like privacy laws in, in our 
you know, hospital institutions, I guess, but it's a community-based approach. And so it needs a community-based solution. And, and this is the solution, right, is to check on someone or I'll go out and run and get them in my car, says, you know, the home care worker. Um, so there's a lot of flexibility in, in people's roles. And I think that's what actually makes a lot of this work is that we're not stuck in, in those rigid protocols that are there for union rules or safety rules or whatever. It's around, around delivering the care that's needed at that time for that person. And I think that's a huge advantage to the success of this. That is beautiful, Cheryl. I think that's a really beautiful vision of what care can and should be and, and what we should be moving and striving towards. So I think we're running out of time. Uh, I think there will be further CRA Around the Room podcasts on Indigenous health. We look forward to having Raheem Karani and Dr. Lindsay Kroshu from the University of Calgary also joining us. It's been a pleasure talking with you, Cheryl. Thank you very much for your attendance. Thanks, Brian. It was great to chat with you today, too. That's it for this episode of Around the Room. Our podcast is produced for the CRA by David McGuffin, Dr. Dax Rumsey, and Kevin Bajnoth. We would like to give a special thanks to the Communications Committee and the staff of the CRA for their hard work. An extra special thanks today to Drs. Brent Ohada and Cheryl Barnaby. If you enjoyed your time with us, please give us a rating and subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. You can also share this podcast with your colleagues and spread the word on social media. I'm Daniel Ennis. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time.